0: Welcome back to the reading and writing podcast. My guest today is Lainey Cameron, author of the novel, The Exit Strategy. Lainey, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Jeff. I'm so excited to be here with you.
0: Great. I'm excited, too. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your novel, The Exit Strategy yet, how would you describe the novel?
1: Gosh, there are so many ways to describe it, but one is to say it's about woman power or girl power grown up. It's actually a novel about women overcoming the weird situations that sometimes we get thrown into in life, in this case, by a guy. And another way to describe it would be to say it's the story of a wife and a mistress who are forced to work together. One is a venture capitalist, meaning she invests in companies for a living. That's my main character, Ren Brennan. And on the opening pages of the novel, she's getting ready to walk into a meeting where it's basically a company that she has bet her whole career on by investing in this company. And as she gets ready to walk into the meeting, she realizes that the person who she's bet everything on, who's the CEO of the other company, is her husband's mistress. And so that's kind of the first two pages of the book.
0: (laughs) Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing the exit strategy?
1: I do. And it's funny because it started with such a small seed, which was this idea of a wife picking up the phone and calling a mistress and the mistress not knowing she was a mistress and not identifying that way at all and being in total shock to realize that in this case in the book, her fiance is already married. And then from there, I kind of said to myself, okay, so what if the two women couldn't walk away from each other? What would be a scenario where they couldn't just end that phone call and never talk to each other again? And so I came up with this idea of, okay, what if they were forced to work together and their professional success was completely dependent on the other? And so neither of them could afford to not work together, but obviously neither of them wants to do it. And then the question came, okay, where will I set this book? And what's funny is the book has become a bit of a feminist anthem. It's been performing really well. It's been number one for a while in Amazon in feminist fiction or feminist books. But I actually didn't set out to write it that way. I just asked myself, where should I set this book? And I said, well, I've worked for 20 plus years in Silicon Valley. I'll set it what, where I'm used to, which is in the world of venture capital and startups and uh, Silicon Valley and board meetings and i have spent a long time being the only woman in the boardroom. And so I just wrote what I had experienced, which is an incredibly sexist environment where you kind of have to fight tooth and nail to be taken seriously. And you are the only woman in the room. And so I thought, well, I'll just set it where I'm used to. And it's funny that it's become a bit of a feminist anthem as a book, because by the end of the book, I was like, oh, this is fiction. I can actually fix all the things you can't necessarily fix easily in real life. And so people love the way this book actually tackles sexism and takes it on.
0: Well, what was your own writing journey that led you from a career in technology and business to writing your novel, The Exit Strategy?
1: Well, I'm really, you know, lucky, blessed, fortunate that I could afford to do this because, you know, first off, it's hard, right? Very few people make money writing novels. It's something we do for love, and a few, very, very few people make money off it. It's it's the exception more than the rule. And so, what happened is five years ago, I had finished one job at a startup and. I thought, you know, I have this idea. I have this idea in my head for, for this novel. I've said I would write a novel for a long time in my life, but, you know, I never really took any concrete steps towards it. This was about five years ago. And so I gave myself six months, which that's where I say I'm lucky because not everyone can afford to do that, right? The more common scenario is you have to do it while you're working full time and while you're looking after your kids and all the other things. And So I was really fortunate that I was able to kind of gift myself that six months. And so for six months, I worked on it. I I wanted to see if I had the end of the novel because I didn't know if it had an ending. I just had a beginning at that point. And I kind of had concept to the middle, but I had no idea how it was going to end. And so very much for the first one, I was a pantser. I was kind of going along and making it up as I went along. And then before I went back to work, I actually won an award for an unpublished n- novel. So it was a, an award from Women's Fiction Writers Association, and I thought, okay, maybe I can make this work. Maybe maybe I could be good at this. And so it's a five year journey from when I started to the book coming out into the world. But it's a journey I took really seriously. You know, they say if you if you want to be treated like a professional, act like a professional. And so I did all of the things. I took all of the classes. I did all of the craft workshops. I um, went to several retreats, I went to several conferences, in the end, I actually rewrote it another time over three years with a really ace developmental editor. And so I'm very fortunate that this is both my first book and my debut novel, which I recognize is unusual, right? A lot of us write many books before we're ready for that book or before it kind of happens for us. And I ended up going with a small publisher, I'm sure we'll talk more about the publishing path. But I do feel really fortunate that it is both my first book and my kind of debut novel out from a publisher and it's doing really well. It just won its sixth award, which uh, kind of amazes me given how hard it was to actually get it published. And so um, I'm, you know, touched that people, it's its um, its affecting people and they're really enjoying the book.
0: Had you Had you written fiction before or had you thought about writing fiction when you were working as a technology executive?
1: No. In fact, I was a marketing executive. So what I wrote was copy, right? If anything, I would write advertising copy, which is it's good for learning the the art of being short and punchy. And I've been a reader forever. I am a huge reader. I love to read. Although when I was in tech and I was traveling and working these crazy 80 plus weeks, I didn't get to read very much. Every airline journey was actually like catching up on hours of emails. But um, I used to be, like when I was younger, before my career truly took off, I used to be a voracious reader. I remember when I was a kid, I read my, my way through the entire Terry Pratchett Discworld series, and I've still got a little bit of a soft spot for all things set in like fantasy worlds, even though I chose to write women's fiction. Um, and I have to admit that part of me still believes that we're all floating through the universe on the back of a giant turtle, because that's <laughs> what I read when I was a teenager, and it just stuck. So... <laughs>
0: Well, what was the publishing process for you for getting the exit strategy published?
1: So I did what many people do, I think, which is I started on the agent path and said, okay, maybe I could find an agent to represent this book. And I was still fairly new to this world. And I don't think I understood the pros and cons of all the paths completely yet, because now it's a a topic I'm very passionate about, helping people understand among the five or six different paths to publishing, which one is right for them. But at first, I queried agents, and the first round of queries, my book wasn't ready, and I got feedback that was really interesting and hard to deal with because it was all over the map, but it was kind of like, I liked it, but I didn't like Rin, your venture capitalist character, or I liked it, but I didn't like Carly, your other character, your, your CEO, single mom character, or something didn't quite gel about both characters, or actually I loved both characters, but I can't quite put my finger on it. There's something that's not, I'm not gonna offer representation. And so the first round, I only queried a a smaller number of agents and I got this feedback that was all over the map, but I love what Neil Gaiman says. He says, look at where they pointed as opposed to what they said. And if you listen to all of that feedback, it was all character. I couldn't quite work out what the heck it was about character, but it was all about character. And that was where I actually turned to, to a developmental editor because I didn't know how to diagnose what was wrong. And you can't fix it if you can't diagnose it. And clearly all these really smart agents, they didn't know how to diagnose it either because they were giving me really contradictory feedback. And so that was where I turned to a developmental, developmental editor named Tiffany Yates Martin, who is amazing. She's among the best. She actually now has a book where she's put all of that expertise into a book called Intuitive Editing, which I thoroughly recommend. And what she saw was, I hadn't managed to get enough backstory in to make the characters as relatable as they needed to be. So my venture capitalist character, she's in a pretty difficult situation at the beginning of the book where she's not going to be on her best behavior, right? If you walk into a meeting with your husband's mistress and you believe that she knows she's the mistress and she still came to pitch you for money, you're probably not gonna shake her hand and say, hi, nice to meet you. You're going to be pretty mean in that meeting. And so without the context of understanding that she just learned her husband's having an affair, that she's fought her whole life to be taken seriously in a man's world, my readers weren't getting it. In fact, I would get feedback from my beta readers like, we don't understand why she didn't cry in that meeting. Why did she not burst into tears in the middle of the boardroom? And for me, that was so obvious that you could never do that because I lived in that man's world and I <laughs> did fight tooth and nail, but it wasn't obvious to my beta readers. They were like, only a, only a really horrible person could actually like manage their emotions in that way and still walk into the meeting and still conduct the meeting. So I had to build in a lot more backstory to help my viewers have the context and my readers have the context of what was happening. Isn't that funny that I said viewers? I guess I'm a visual, visual person, but to help my readers have the context of, of what was happening. And that was a big thing that I worked on, is like, how do you make strong female protagonists, professional setting, how do you make them relatable to the reader? And it's also why now, I'll tell you at the end of the story of publication, it's also why now when I get these awards and I get feedback and I get reviews that specifically say people love the characters, I, I kind of do a little hip, hip, hooray. Whoa, I worked on that. That wasn't easy. And <laughs> so it's fun when the very thing that you had to work the hardest on ends up being the thing that people actually like in your book. But I definitely, I rewrote the book over a year, three entire times after working with that developmental editor with Tiffany. And at the end of that process, because she's an expert, she's a pro, she didn't have any reason to blow smoke at me. And she felt the book was truly ready for publication. That time when I queried agents, I felt very confident that the book was ready, that even though it was my first book, this was a book that deserved to be in the world. And that time, the feedback I got, at that point, I got got a lot of full manuscript requests. And I did the first time as well, because it's kind of a catchy idea. I think I had 135 agents that I queried. I had over 40 full manuscript requests. And interestingly, the feedback came back that time. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I stayed up all night, and I'm still not going to offer representation. And that was harder, because what do you do with that? (laughs) It was really interesting. And the answer, it took me quite a while to get there. I actually used some of my connections through women uh, writers that I'd met through Women's Fiction Writers Association to get a couple of agents to look at it. I got a little bit of feedback from one publisher friend, and that's how I worked out that what really was going on there is my book didn't have a comp. It's a book set in Silicon Valley, doused in a lot of sexism about the power of female friendship and how women can lift each other up. And there's a lot of books out there about wives and mistresses that are more like suspense books where someone's going to die by the end of the book. And there's also a lot of books about women being really mean to each other, which is not my life experience, but there's a lot of books like that. But there are almost no books set in a professional environment about women lifting each other up and ultimately becoming friends in a difficult situation. And so what it was about is agents judge the the possibility of selling a book to a big publisher, which is what an agent's looking for, by whether a similar book has sold in the past. And so if you don't have a comp, you don't have a book that's very similar that sold in the past, it's a much bigger risk for an agent to take because they can't say, oh yeah, this is just like that, but a little bit different. Right. And so it took me a while though. It took me a few months to work that out. And as I did, Um, I was ready to move forward with my plan B for publishing this book, which was small publisher. So I had actually had some great advice from April Eberhardt, who's an expert on paths to publishing. And she said, you know, have your plan A. So in this case, it was querying big agent, you know, agent, big publisher, and have your plan B and give plan A a set period of time. She recommended six months, but might be more or less depending where you are. Um, Give it a set period. And when you reach at the end of that time, so for me, it was six months, move on plan B. And I was really lucky that I got um, a couple of, well, one agent offer and I used it to kind of go back to all the other agents and say, hey, let's get an answer. Let's, let's move this on here and got a resounding round of no's. <laughs> and so that was the moment to move on. And I put it out to, uh, I think, I went to six small publishers. And within a month and a half, two months, I had several offers from small publishers because they're measuring against a different bar. They're looking at, is the book well written? Do I think there's an audience for this book? they're not looking at, can it be sold to a big publisher who has to sell a certain volume and a certain way of doing things? And so it's really interesting that it has gone on to do pretty well for a small publisher book. Like I said, it's been a number one bestseller on Amazon and feminist books category. And I'm really pleased with it, right? It's it's not going to show up on the on the shelves of Barnes and Noble, but just the, the reviews and the, the letters and the feedback that I get from readers is fabulous. And I'm so glad I didn't let Then let someone tell me I couldn't start my author career just because path A wasn't the right answer for this book.
0: That's great. And what publisher did you end up with?
1: And with the Wild Rose Press. They do a lot of romance. They've been around a while. Actually, they just celebrated their 15-year anniversary as a small press. And they do a lot of romance. I I guess like 80 90% of their books are in the romance genre. And increasingly in the last few years, they've been doing women's fiction and putting out some great women's fiction as well.
0: That's great. Well, are you writing a second novel now?
1: I am. I am working on a book that is not set in Silicon Valley. It's interesting because during the five years that I was working on this book, I actually wrote it all around the world. So after I made the decision to become a full-time writer, my husband and I looked at each other and said, we don't really need to be paying San Francisco rents anymore. If you're writing and I'm a computer consultant and I could do my, my husband could do his job from anywhere, So we decided to become digital nomads. So for five years, up until the pandemic, which is a whole different world for the last 12 months, but for five years, we actually would choose locations to live six months at a time. And so long as we had an internet connection, we could both work from anywhere. And so that's what I've been doing for the last five years. And the connection to my new book is that my new book is about a digital nomad Instagrammer who (laughs) has a dark secret and a dark past. And so at the beginning of the book, um, the thing that happened in her childhood that made her change her name and her identity and decide to start again fresh outside the U.S. is actually back in the national headlines on CNN. And she's very in very big danger of being exposed and forced back into a life that she no longer wants to lead.
0: Interesting. We'll look forward to that. So can you tell us about your own podcast and interview series, The Best of Women's Fiction?
1: Of course. I love talking about this. One thing I've tried to do all the way through that journey over the last five five years is work out how to support other writers. So, you know, I wrote a book that's about women supporting w- women and uplifting women. And it was very important to me that I get engaged early in the community. And I have felt so supported by the women's fiction writers community of writers who write that particular genre all the way through this journey. So whether it was finding beta readers or working out which classes and workshops to go to or getting advice on paths to publication and working out how to navigate through that at each step, I was supported by other writers. And so what I always advise others who are kind of where I was starting out is work out how to give back and how to add value to others in the community early on. So for me, when I started out, I wasn't a I wasn't yet a novelist. right? I didn't have sk- uh, skills to share on the craft side. You know, now I probably do. But back then I didn't. But what I could do is I could host zooms. I was pretty good online. I was really good with tech. So I um, I. Volunteered with Women's Fiction Writers Association, which is an association of about 1,500 people who write that particular genre. And so that was a great way for me to build community and get to know people in my genre. So now I do know a lot of people in the women's fiction writers world. I'm really familiar with that genre. And now because I have a following myself, I've got over 7,000 followers on Instagram, I wanted to do something to support other writers and help raise the visibility of authors who maybe aren't getting viewed or aren't getting seen in the same way yet. And so I created a podcast and an interview series where I interview people I admire, authors I admire in the women's fiction writer space um, in the genre that is known as women's women's fiction.
2: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
1: And it's a mix. It's everything from debut writers when their first book is coming out to multi, multi bestsellers like Barbara O'Neill who sold like, I don't know, 2 million copies of When We Believed in Mermaids. So like we've had a real mix of people. I try to really invite people that impress me I'd like to get more diverse with the podcast, just like I think the genre needs to get more diverse. So that's a quick tip. If anyone's got a great diverse women's fiction writer, send them my way because sure. I really am trying to trying to support diverse writers. I feel like it's a journey that we're not quite there on yet in that genre. Still a little too white, too middle class. Um, but you know, part of how we fix that is we try and reach out and find more opportunities for writers are writing slightly different stories. Um, so I love it. I get people on. I ask them what inspired them exactly like you do, Jeff. Where did the idea come from? I also also ask them what's their best writing advice that they would give if they could rewind and talk to them, their younger self? What's the advice they would give you know, another writer a little bit earlier in the journey? And I also ask what changed during editing? I always find that to be a fun one to see the end book, you assume it's a certain way and it was always that way. And I think readers are always fascinated to know that the book was very different in its earlier iterations than the final version. So that's one kind of under the covers. I like to dig a little on that one too. And we keep it really short. The whole interview is like 10, 15 minutes by the end.
0: That's great. People should check that out. So what writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories and novels?
1: So obviously the community thing is big for me. So find your community and it doesn't even have to be within the genre. So for me, because I was remote, I wasn't in one location around the world or in the US for very long, as you gathered, the fact that this was primarily an online community served me really well. And obviously during the pandemic, that served us all really well to have online communities as well. But it could be a local community of your local writers It could be cross genre. I actually host a writer's community meetup on Thursday nights on Zoom. Every Thursday night, we call it a writer support group. And we go through a whole range of topics, everything from craft topics to motivational conversation. And we try to support each other. And that is cross genre. It's got people from all different genres. So that would be my first one is find your community and work out how to give value to them early on. But also I would say, especially at the beginning, don't try to obey all the writing roles. I made this mistake. And it really stalled me out for quite a while. I read, I am such a geek, I read like all the craft books. Okay. So I probably read like 30 or 40 craft books. And, you know, coming from tech, I'm like, okay, if you read the book, you learn to program, you understand how the technology works, and then you do it. Oh, no, 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 no. That is not like that in writer world, right? As you know, all the roles contradict each other, right? Like, Take out all the backstory. Don't have any internal monologue. Oh, wait, no, you need that to let people understand your characters. So like I made the mistake of reading all the books and trying to (laughs) follow all the guidelines and all the supposed rules and guidance. And now I say to people, do not do that. Do not make my mistake. Write the book first to the best of your ability. Get your first draft of your first book or your second book or your third onto the paper or the computer screen And everything can be learned from there. So like, even if your storytelling isn't perfect yet, if you kind of get yourself looped around trying to have perfect plots before you've even written the first draft, you'll just get so stymied on all the things you're doing wrong. And that goes against the whole creativity of writing that first draft. So now my strong advice to people, at least from what I learned, obviously everybody's different is don't try to obey all the rules and know all the things and get it all worked out beforehand. Let your first draft of your first book just get there, get it on the paper, let your creativity flow. Because I didn't realize five years ago that that thing that I created would be revised and rewritten 15 times before it saw the world. I didn't really internalize that. And so if I'd known that and internalized it, I would not have spent all this time stressing all over so many things that didn't matter, right? Whether it's research that you do that actually turns out, oh, that whole whole storyline's gone anyway. Or it's like this paragraph that just doesn't sound quite right. And you obsess and you rewrite it and rewrite it. And the paragraph, in fact, the whole chapter isn't even in the final book. So like I spent a lot of time and energy on things that I thought mattered that ultimately by version 15 didn't matter at all. And so this time I would say I'm, I'm holding my manuscript and my writing much more loosely, if that makes any sense. Like I'm not obsessing over a lot of things. I'm seeing that it's not right and I'm letting it go and moving forward because I know I'll be back to revise that word, paragraph, sentence, chapter, how many times before this thing sees the world and the reader holds it. So like I'm trying very hard this time to hold it very loosely and not obsess over those things that the first time around, oh, the number of hours of research I did on things that, you know, at the end of the day didn't matter at all.
0: right right well what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed
1: oh there are gosh how long have you got how many hours do we have (laughs) (laughs) so let's see uh one i had very recently uh just came out recently by kathleen basie it's called a song for the road and it's a debut novel it's got a beautiful blue cover and it's I'll tell you the storyline, but I'm also going to ask everybody listening, don't get put off by this before I explain why it's an amazing book. So the opening page, the main character lost her husband and two teenage children a year ago in a car accident. So it's a year later and she's dealing with grief. She's not really dealing well with her grief. So that sounds like it would be a pretty sad book, right? But what Kathleen did is she wrote a book, but this mother, no longer having her kids and her husband... Going on a road trip, it's a fascinating idea. She finds an app that her teenagers wrote, which is a flip a coin app, which means that basically at each location, you flip a coin and depending on whether it's heads or tails, it sends you in a different direction. (laughs) And so her kids wrote this app, totally credible. Her teenagers wrote this whole app, intending to send her and her husband on this trip right before she lost them. And she never finds this until a year later. She's having a bit of a meltdown. She's had a very bad moment on this day. And she finds this app. And of course, as we all would, she says, I'm going on the trip. And so she does. And she picks up a a pregnant hitchhiker. And the journey is about her deciding that in spite of the deepest sorrow possible, you can still see beauty and decide to keep going with life. It is such a beautiful book. And it made me cry. It made me hopeful. But I mean, the skill it takes to write a book about immeasurable grief and leave the reader just feeling hopeful about the planet. Wow. I, for a debut novel, I am so impressed with what Kathleen achieved there.
0: That sounds impressive.
1: Yeah. And other books, I love books that take me to foreign countries. Um, I especially, you know, during the pandemic, I was in one location and I couldn't travel. So some of the books that I loved that helped me travel the Mountains Sing." which is a beautiful uh, multi-generational book set in Vietnam. It's by, I'm going to see if I can get it right. Nguyen Phan Mai. I did interview her on my podcast, so I'm close, if not perfect there. And she's actually a a somewhat celebrated poet and author in Vietnam, but this is the first book she wrote in English. And she wrote it in English. She didn't write it and have it translated um, with a dictionary. She'll talk about this, like this experience. And she was determined that she wanted the Vietnamese names and foods and words to be pure with all of their right accents. And so she was determined and she insisted on that. And so the book is a wonderful a wonderful intro to Vietnamese living and culture, but it's also a really compelling multi-generational story of Vietnamese women. It's all around the, the women. And when she talks about this, one of the things I love is K-Mai says... The stories we hear about women in Vietnam, the first thing that comes to mind is something like Miss Saigon, the very famous musical, or the Vietnam War, or Vietnamese women marrying American GIs. So these stories get told through the perspective of Americans looking at Vietnam, not from the perspective of Vietnamese women themselves. And they're also kind of stereotypical, and they portray Vietnamese women as looking for a man, right, as a big theme of most stories that are out there before this book. And so this is the opposite. It's about the strength of the grandmother and the strength of how they lived through the war despite the situations and the strength of how they lived through various revolutions. And it's a beautiful book. It's wonderful. I actually encourage people to get the audio as well. Because if you're like me, you're not perfect on your Vietnamese pronunciation of things. And so I realized that I was getting almost every name in the book wrong as I was reading it. And then I had the audio and I would actually listen to sections of the audio just so I could hear the correct pronunciation of the names (laughs) in the book. And um, to give you a sense, K-Mai just got chosen, I think it was just a few weeks ago, by Forbes magazine as one of the 20 most inspiring women in Vietnam because of the purity she insisted on bringing and how she's changing the perception of Vietnamese women because of this book.
0: That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel, The Exit Strategy?
1: Yeah, I'm going to give you two websites, one for me and one for my podcast. So for me, if you'd like to learn more about The Exit Strategy, it's going to be LaineyCameron.com, L-A-I-N-E-Y, Cameron.com. And that's where you can find all kinds of goodies. In fact, if you're reading the book, there's all kinds of fun stuff in there. My main character has a bit of a Nutella fixation. When she can't deal with things, she takes a jar of Nutella and a spoon and just (laughs) chugs the whole thing. And so there's actually a whole section of like recipes for things you can make with Nutella if you've already read the book, including the famous Nutella latte that's in the book. And there's also a behind-the-scenes section where... I did a travel guide of all the locations that are in the book, including some that got renamed. So you can see the real places if you download the travel guide. So there's some fun stuff, a book club kit, some other fun stuff if you have read it. and If you haven't read it, there's a lot of good things to read about, see if it's your kind of book or not. Lots of reviews out there now. And then the other website that I would recommend is the one that has all of the interviews from the podcast. It got so big that I felt like it shouldn't just be a section of my own website anymore. And so that's at www.bestofwomensfiction.com. And you can find all the links to subscribe to the podcast in all the different places, Apple Podcasts and Google and Spotify and everywhere. And also all the videos, I think we're up to 50 odd in video format are on the website. So you can watch the video there or download any of the podcasts.
0: That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Lainey Cameron, author of the novel, The Exit Strategy. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And as she just explained, you can listen to her podcast at bestofwomensfiction.com. Lainey, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Jeff. This has been a pleasure.
0: Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt of the audiobook of The Exit Strategy by Lainey Cameron, available wherever audiobooks are sold.
4: Rin scrawled, seething, on a scrap of paper and crammed it into the feelings jar on her desk. She winced at the glare bouncing off the adjacent skyscrapers, streaming through the wall of windows into her office. The San Francisco weather gods apparently didn't get the memo. Dismal fog was the appropriate backdrop to discovering her husband's affair, not sparkly damn sunshine she opened her valuation spreadsheet. Perhaps a focus on the data would calm the shitstorm rumbling inside her head. Pop's technique of stuffing unwanted emotions in a jar usually worked, but not this morning, and the meeting with BioLarge started in ten minutes. The promotion she'd been denied for two years depended on closing this deal— She refused to blow it because of an infidelity brain scramble. The rows of numbers blurred, and she struggled to recall her negotiation points as dozens of memories demanded re-examination. Todd's golf trip last month. With her, his mistress. Two weeks ago, when his apartment development project required an extended stay in Nevada through the weekend. With her those loving texts when Wren was out of town. I can't imagine one more hour without you. What time do you land? Not so loving now. Just measuring how much longer he had with her. She didn't know which hurt more, Todd lying or him finding this other woman, this Carly, so special she was worth risking a perfect partnership. Rin stood and shook out her hands. If more time remained, she'd redo her analysis. But her brain had been buzzing like this since yesterday. Thousands of micro-deceptions like memory popcorn, every burst a new realization of betrayal. Keep it together, Rin. She focused on the faded poster of John Wayne on a rearing horse opposite her desk, a gift from her oldest brother, Jack, and tried to summon a happy memory of childhood on the ranch in Montana. Eyes closed, she imagined the morning scent of impatient cattle trampling soggy grass. From horseback, she leaned and opened the barn gate for the squad of grumbling cows who blocked her way, nudging her stirrups with their wet noses. Behind them, Jack and Mom trotted across a field dotted with wild roses to catch up. Mom's head tilted back in laughter, her everyday teal and purple headscarf rippling. Wren opened her eyes and dug her teeth into her bottom lip. She couldn't even summon a real memory instead of wishful thinking. Life had never delivered sunshine and wildflowers, Before she became old enough to ride the morning cattle rounds, Mom died from that soul-sucker, cancer, and Rin had been exiled to live with Aunt Dusty. She closed her laptop, giving up on any hopes of adjusting her mood. At least here at Centra Ventures, she was indispensable, and the BioLarge team would arrive any minute. Rin opened her prep folder. With the remaining time, she'd review the background of the last executive she asked to meet today. So far, her negotiations were with Paul Alexander, this company's CEO. But funding a startup without evaluating the technical founder would be bad business. Annoying that, despite asking him twice, Paul claimed his co-owner was too busy with clinical trials to join their prior meetings her fingers flipped to the section of the folder with management biographies. A photo of Carly Santos, BioLarge's co-founder and chief scientist, smiled next to a biography full of patents and achievements. Carly. Rin's skin prickled. Prickled like the moment you notice inconsistencies in a company's accounts, or at night when you cross the road to avoid the man with the neck tattoo and he follows you. She studied the photo. Carly was a common enough name. There must be hundreds, thousands of women named Carly in the Bay Area. Big, doe eyes stared at her with a warmth that never showed in her photos. Rin's steely pose in leadership shots had become an office joke, with the other partners pushing her to smile just this once. But grinning on demand wasn't how a woman got taken seriously in a world where testosterone dripped down the walls. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons